Today on the show, a review of Dune before its publication somehow applies to Gamjabar, quote, slow spots, varying conversations, bursts of melodrama, end quote. What? What? Rude. Bursts? (laughs) It's constant melodrama, okay? Couldn't be us. Different show. Different show. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. <laughs> and Leo. Yes. We're talking books, but not the <laughs> books. A different what? book ab- Wait, about the uh, book. S- uh, I can't wait to launch a podcast about this podcast, about this episode. Yeah. We're talking about something completely different today. Kind of. Yeah. It's still Dune. We promise it's still Dune. We but promise. today's episode is pretty meta, actually. Yeah. Because we're going to be talking about a book called The Road to Dune, which was published in 2005. Right. And this book actually features a history of Frank Herbert and Dune, how he came up with the story and the journey of getting Dune published and out there in the world. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit off the beaten path, but we are excited to talk about maybe some of these lesser discussed elements of Dune. And initially this was going to be just one episode. Uh However. Silly us. Silly us. It's like we don't know ourselves. (laughs) It's like we haven't learned in (laughs) 79 listenable episodes. This is going to be part one of two. And we'll talk about why that ended up being the case just after housekeeping. So stay tuned for that. That's right. Okay. Housekeeping. Yes. First up, spoiler warning. Mm. This episode will contain some light spoilers from both Dune and Dune Messiah. Right. So just to be extra safe, we recommend that you make sure you have read the first two books in the series. Right. Conveniently, Uh. we have (laughs) full book club series to guide you through those books. A 10-part series for the first book and an 8-part series for Dune Messiah. So no better time to read them now. Literally no better time. Do it. (laughs) Well, the better time is yesterday. Second best time today. Yeah. The best way to support us is joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. You will get, for your support, ad-free episodes, bonus bloopers and clips too spicy for our main fun and access to an exclusive discord. (laughs) Say hi. Drop some memes. (laughs) enjoy me ranting about whatever anime i'm watching join us (laughs) it's a fun time yeah as always we have to shout out our quizettes haderach level patrons case aiken Mm. nate hyde Mm. guys yeah where's the meta book about your lives (laughs) how did you come to be quizettes haderach level patrons of this podcast we need the history we need all your correspondence. Come on, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. The road to Case Aiken and Nate Hyde. Get on it. Publish the it. next bestseller. Stop writing Dune books. <laughs> Please. We also have brand new merchandise over at gomjabarshop.com. 
It's another great way to support the show and get yourself something kind of cool. We have a pint glass. We've got socks. Walk without rhythm socks. Oh, you can avoid so shy halud. They're so cute. Yeah. My favorite new thing is the Conley sticker that you designed, Leo. Oh. It's so I'm going to slap that on everything. It's supreme, but Conley. <laughs> so you can like challenge anyway. It was a dumb concept, but it was I was up late. I love it. I love it. In any case, if you like Dune, there could be something there for you. Check it out. We super appreciate it. For sure. And hey, let us know what you think of today's episode. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com is the best way to send us your feedback, to share your own thoughts, or just to say hello. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com, folks. Yep. We love to get your messages. Well, with housekeeping out of the way, let's talk about why (laughs) why this episode. (laughs) Basically... Even as obsessed with Dune as we clearly are, the road to Dune really only landed on our radar maybe like two years ago. And still, as I've been talking to people, there are plenty of people who say, I haven't heard of that or I don't know what that is. And we get questions about things that are literally addressed directly in the book. Yeah. So clearly it's something that we've been kind of wanting to talk about and I think would be fun to talk about mostly because of the fact that it's maybe not as well known. For sure. I just had a coworker last week who's reading Dune text me and ask how Frank came up with the idea for Dune. Yeah. And I was like, Emily, my girl, (laughs) just you wait. We're working on a script. We'll explain it in more detail than you could have ever imagined. (laughs) It's going to say you didn't leave her on read for a week and a half. (laughs) You're like, she'll figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. So this episode in particular is dedicated to Emily. Oh, Hope she hey Emily. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise dedication. Hi. <laughs> As a warning, though. Right. If you do pick up Road to Dune, a reminder that it is written by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. And a bulk of the book isn't necessarily these letters and the history of Frank creating Dune. Right. A lot of the book is actually short stories that brian and kevin have written that are like sort of dune related yeah so what we're going to be talking about today is actually just a small portion of the book and if you do pick up road to dune thinking there's a lot more history there a lot of the book is actually just like brian and kevin side story stuff so just a warning in case you're like eyeing the book and ready to buy it right now right i kind of measured it out it's like 70 percent of the book is Brian Herbert like stories and things like that. Yeah. Really only about 30% of the book is what we are going to be focusing on. We wanted to make that 30% more accessible to people who are really interested in Frank's books specifically. It's a big book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There, there's a lot of ground to cover <laughs> and there was sort of a natural way to break up the conversation. So right. in today's episode, in part one, we're going to be focusing on what the road to Dune tells us about Frank's writing of Dune, his inspiration for it, his conversations back and forth with his agent and publishing companies, and some of the insight that we get from these, honestly, like really incredible letters that are just verbatim copied into this book. And I think they give us a peek inside Frank's mind and also (laughs) inside sort of the larger science fiction publishing industry at the time yeah it's really interesting it's cool to see frank say this is how i wrote it (laughs) (laughs) people go "Ah, i wonder what he was thinking about frank's like here's what i was thinking about when i wrote (laughs) right yeah yeah it's cool 
Now, part two is going to cover unpublished and deleted scenes and chapters from Ooh. Dune and Dune Messiah. Hello. Yeah, so <laughs> a lot of these, as we'll talk about today, a lot of these were cut due to length. Really, literally just t- Dune was too long. And so while some of them are certainly changes and certainly like not really applicable to the characters that we now know, some of them as just cut content that is still compatible with the rest of Frank's universe could be seen as kind of soft canon. Yeah. And could be seen as sort of the way Frank is thinking about these characters and maybe just didn't have the space and time to explain it or decided it wasn't as important, but that it is still true, right? Very cool. Working on that script right now, there's a lot of really neat stuff uh, and stuff that I'm glad is not in Dune, (laughs) frankly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's the process for any piece of art, you know? Yeah. Stuff gets cut. Yeah, for sure. There are literal hundreds of hours of audio for this podcast. No one will ever hear because <laughs> it's been cut because some of it was bad and others of it was just too long, you know? Yeah. I really identify with Frank here writing Dune. I get oh, 100%. it. 100%. Like I remember some of the most <laughs> formative lessons I learned getting my art degree. How's that working out for me? Oh. <laughs> is a lot of the creative process is editing and removing and you're right yeah we have like three hour recordings that became our 10 minute episodes like, yeah yeah it's nuts right use your imagination folks what could we possibly be saying <laughs> it's all dick jokes it's just all sex <laughs> it's jokes. only dick jokes <laughs> <laughs> and now for two hours of sex jokes <laughs> <laughs> all righty with the housekeeping out of the way we have set the stage we've teased what's to come in part one and part two right let's now take a short break but folks don't go anywhere because we are getting into the origin story of dune itself right after this at Evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder welcome back everybody let's talk about a kind of broad overview of what the road to dune is so we're all on the same page so As briefly mentioned, The Road to Dune is a book that looks at the path that Dune took from its very first kind of twinkle in Frank's eye to the realization of the full novel and, of course, the thing that it is today that we love. Right. And the book includes a touching foreword by the sci-fi author Bill Ransom that we'll talk about a little bit later. It includes letters from Frank to his editor, which offers some insights into the process Frank went through in the crafting of this world and this universe. It includes Frank's notes and summary of the unwritten magazine article that inspired Dune, which is called They Stopped the Moving Sands. And then, of course, as we mentioned, unused chapters from both Dune and Dune Messiah. What a treasure trove. Pretty good. Yeah. Wow. What an incredible record as far as like Dune history is concerned to have these like primary source letters 
yeah. here in writing. Very cool. <laughs> what a great 30% of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly. What a great, solid 30% of the book. The other 70% of the book, as we mentioned earlier, is like alternate version, short story, Dune stuff written by Brian and Kevin. Right. Again, we're not going to touch on that today, but uh, maybe someday in the future, if y'all really want us to. Indeed. So let's set out on this road to Dune mm -hmm. and uh, talk about not Dune for a second. Let, let's actually go to Florence, Oregon, if that's okay with everybody. Oh, love it. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly Florence, Italy, but it tries, you know. I mean, second best in the world, probably. <laughs> the second best Florence I've heard of, at least. <laughs> that I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Back in 1957, I almost said BG. Holy shit. <laughs> Before Wait, Guild. mental math here. <laughs> That's like 26-something thousand years before Guild, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Clearly, something is broken in my brain. Side note, almost called Earth Terra to someone the other day. <laughs> oh, my God. Dune is breaking us as people, and I love it. <laughs> Back in actual real-world time, 1957, about two years before... Frank formally started working on Dune, or at least started the research for it. Mm -hmm. Frank Herbert caught wind of this research project by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. And basically, the USDA was working on this sand dune problem where these dunes were encroaching on roadways and buildings and mm -hmm. damaging property right? and annoying the fuck out of Anakin Skywalker because <laughs> sand is coarse. <laughs> It gets everywhere. Oh, it gets everywhere. The USDA is like problem number one, gets everywhere. <laughs> right. So the USDA actually tried a bunch of different methods of correcting this problem and discovered that poverty grass planted in the crests of these dunes was actually successful in stabilizing them. It stopped them from pushing onto these roads and buildings. Mm, that sounds and, familiar. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, if you, If you're... A particular Pardo or Liet Kynes out there, like, this is basically your wet dream, what the yeah. USDA is doing. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, what what kind of grass <laughs> did they use? <laughs> Are they, they have good roots. Uh, yeah. Tell me about the roots. How, how, far, how far apart did you plant them? <laughs> Three uh, feet? Oh. Asking, asking for a friend. I'm the friend. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> and Frank was so inspired by this research that he actually wanted to write like a piece on it, an article about it. And he detailed this article to his agent, Lurton Blastingame, outlining this research that the USDA is doing and basically wanting to write a piece on it. Right. And Lurton's response was lukewarm at best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically after talking about the USDA project, kind of catching Lurton up on what's going on in Florence, Oregon, Frank ends his letter in this way. This is Frank's words. Quote, They tried more than 11,000 different types of grass before hitting on this one, and they were working against time because of the sand invasion along this stretch of coast. It makes an exciting story with a very nice conservation twist and some excellent human angles. Let's see if somebody wants it. End quote. And I did want to point out here, throughout this section, although Frank and Lurton are talking about this article, right? They stopped the moving sands. Keep in mind that this is Dune in Alpha. Yeah. Like this is the seed that would grow into Dune. And 
a lot of Lurton's feedback, you know, this lukewarm feedback, is clearly conceptual feedback for what would become Dune. Yeah. And I think a lot of this, like, figuring out Dune in its alpha build, like, how do you tell an ecological drama story without getting caught up in the weeds, so to speak? <laughs> but, um, right? But also, <laughs> for real, like, how do you... Frank is clearly like, look at all the grass they tried. And Lurton's like, cool, cool. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the people, though. Like, <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and Lurton's feedback was very much along those lines. Like in one letter, he writes to Frank and tells him that the story currently feels a bit limited. Like, can he expand on the premise? Like, is it just about these dunes and this grass? Is there more to be said here? Right. And then in a second letter to Frank... Lurton actually gets a little more pointed with his feedback right. and starts talking like, what's the marketability of this idea? Like, is this a, a feature article that's a magazine would want? Is this something else? And he pushes back on some of Frank's focuses on the scientific details of the project. Right. And is basically saying like, yes, geeking out about the science is fun, but like, what's the story here? You know, what's the thing that I, I can emotionally care about? Right, right. And he was basically sort of pushing Frank to find the the human story here. Right. What about this USDA project affected human lives and impacted people at scale? And again, we, we bring these things up because you can start to see where all the seeds are getting planted for what will eventually become the story of Dune. Right. Everything we're saying here, all of this feedback that Lurton is giving to Frank could very much apply to the story of Dune itself and not an article about a USDA research project. Right. Yeah. I, I was asked recently what makes Dune different from a lot of sci-fi, and I think part of its lack of focus on technology and yes we can point at like the butlerian jihad in universe for like why there aren't computers and robots and things like that but even just like a lot of sci-fi and fantasy books can fall into that trap of focusing so intently on the technology or about the magic system or about the like i don't know the the universe and the lore you're like oh look at all this history i wrote yeah it forgets to tell you about like the people and what the people want and what the people are trying to get. And it's such a clear early indication that Frank has a good person on his team with Lurton, right? Yeah. Frank has that instinct to say, look at this interesting story. And Lurton's like, cool, sure, it has potential. But listen, bud, you got to focus in on the people and the narrative. What is the story here? Right. And then you can include the poverty the 11,000 poverty grasses you know like right exactly that's fine and in the end the article they stopped the moving sands was never finished it never ended up being written or published but in the two years following frank did take maybe some of those initial ideas and come up with a basically short adventure novel concept which he titled Spice Planet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, the outline to Spice Planet is as far as it got. Didn't get past the kind of initial outline stage. And it was pretty limited in scope as a story. And, and all of this, by the way, I haven't seen the outline. They don't include the outline here. Uh, one of the things that Brian and Kevin included in this book is they used the outline to like write an alternate version of Dune, which fellas like no one asked for but right. just publish the outline just bro. show us the outline i don't know we have to <laughs> yeah. we don't need your version of dune anyway yeah yeah 
That being said, the broad beats that we get from The Road to Dune is that Spice Planet and its outline focused on a desert world complete with hazards and riches and, you know, it's kind of this gem out in the galaxy. And Frank, as his idea for Spice World, got bigger and bigger. He was like, oh man, we should have worms, you know, (laughs) as that idea evolved. He set that outline aside and this begins the kind of six-year process of probably going to lots of libraries and reading lots of books and researching and writing the first draft of Dune. Yeah. So there you go, Emily. That's how Frank Herbert initially came up with the idea for Dune. It was based off of this USDA research about how to stop Dunes from expanding. Yeah, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) It's really interesting. You can see the obvious through line, these themes of ecology and preservation and the balance of human life it, it, it's all present within dune we've talked about it on this podcast time and time again as one of like the key pillars that holds up the whole dune saga right and it's really fun to learn where that came from yeah and, and how this research found its way into one of the best sci-fi books of all time yeah, no kidding <laughs> Now, skipping over that boring period of research, (laughs) let's get to (laughs) 1963. Yeah. We begin to get the Letters of Dune, which is this collection of letters between Frank and Lurton. Blessing game. (laughs) Leading up to the book we all know and love. And, oh boy, these letters are fascinating. And they really, to me, highlighted how complicated and there's like almost like a cookie cutter that was expected of books. Yeah. And the idea of doing something different than that. And that's probably true for every era of publishing within a genre. But like, especially knowing what Dune would become, it's so interesting to see <laughs> that initial feedback. Let's start with the first letter we get from Lurton. Yes. Yeah. So this first letter that we get in the book is Lurton's response to reading a very early draft of Dune, somewhere in 1963. Again, this is still two full years before it would be published. Right. And Lurton is effusive. He's like, okay, so, you know, parts of it are maybe a bit too slow for some readers, but the (laughs) characters are good, Uh the story is great. Mm -hmm. And he finishes off his letter by basically wrapping up and saying that the book will be heralded. This is a very exciting first draft and he can't wait to <laughs> read the rest of it, yeah. which is like, that's the response you want when you send your agent or your friend or your mom, like an <laughs> early draft of your new book. Yeah. It bodes well for what's to come. Especially because we've seen Lurton is a discerning dude. He's someone to say, you know, this has limited appeal. This is whatever. Yeah. For him to be this, you know, yeah, a little too slow for some readers. Still true. <laughs> <laughs> Still true, Lurton. But right. you're right. This is great feedback for a first draft. Amazing. Now, later that month, we have a letter from Frank, and he basically explains that the scientific specifics, <laughs> such as specific tools, aren't really the focus, other than the still suits he kind of, as an aside, mentions. Uh, and that the story will approach science fiction differently he says, which I I take as like presumably from other popular science fiction at the time. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clearly taking the note from they stop the moving sands. He's like, oh, no, but but I'm not going to focus on the the grass. Okay, yeah. Martin, Jesus. <laughs> it's about the people. It's about the story or whatever. <laughs> now he included seventy pages of Dune with that letter, uh, and, and then he kind of promises to deliver the next, you know, the next week another seventy pages, and. I had to like put myself in Lurton's shoes. Like imagine you've read Dune up through like Paul and Jessica escaping the palace. <laughs> you know, they've gotten out of the ornithopter. Now they're in the desert. And then Frank's like, I'll send you more pages next week. It's like, yeah, fuck. <laughs> I want to <laughs> read now. That's so like to be on that cutting edge would be so fun. Also, shockingly similar to our book club structure i was gonna say <laughs> 70 pages at a time every week it's ambitious we try to keep it to 50 right? <laughs> <right>. take notes <laughs> take notes buddy take notes bud there are then a couple more letters from lurton that express some more feedback and some broad concerns about the story so far right so a- as this story is coming in and he's reading it 70 pages at a time and releasing his book club podcast on the side (laughs) he has some concerns yeah first up this is long this book (laughs) is shaping up to be fucking enormous yeah (laughs) and that's a problem because in the industry at the time it would be really hard to sell such a long serial right because the book wasn't published in one collective volume until later (laughs) initially it would come out in you know like science fiction magazines in a serialized format and Lurton was just like, buddy, I can't release this many words yeah. in, a, in a serialized magazine. It's the One Piece problem. Lurton's like, it's too many fucking episodes of One Piece. I can't I can be able to sell this to my friends. I can't. Exactly. And this actually turns out to be like one of the biggest issues that Frank faces for like the rest of this story. Right. The, the length of the book and how dense it is continues to be feedback he gets over and over and over from multiple people, from agents, from publishing companies. Right, right. And that then is what leads to a lot of those cuts that we'll be talking about in part two. Yeah. Now, the second bit of feedback he gives here, again, broad feedback, is the front part of the story. These early chapters, presumably when they're on Caladan and then they go to Arrakis, are very front-loaded, are very dense, are very heavy, and it's going to be a problem. And readers are going to be kind of overwhelmed, intimidated, etc. Yeah. And he suggests, which and this is huge. <laughs> I kind of wrote this as an aside, but I'm thinking about it, this is actually kind of a big deal. Frank was already doing these sort of like quotes before the chapters, right? You know, here's a little excerpt from the universe before you get into the chapter. He's like, I love that mechanic. Good job making that decision because, hey, that's a way that you can maybe ease the pressure a little bit, right? Yeah. And sure enough, as a reader, I didn't really pay attention to those before chapter excerpts. I would go, oh, this is interesting, but I don't really understand it. Anyway, back to the narrative. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of how I processed it. Of course, on a second read, I'm like, oh, my God, this is dramatic world building. Irulan's forward changes the tone of the second to last chapter dramatically. Yeah. So I think this is so interesting. And this is really Lurton going, hey, you decided on this mechanic. Cool. Lean into it. It's going to help a little bit. Maybe it'll ease that pressure off of the reader the first time they're reading. This is a 
incredible that Dune is still front loaded and very long. Yeah, I was, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> Most of this feedback still relevant today. Yeah. And, it, and it makes you wonder like what monstrosity the book must have been in these early drafts. <laughs> like how front loaded are we talking? Oh my God. I mean, no kidding. Considering every TikTok leading up to the Dune movie release was comments like, I couldn't get past the first hundred pages. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you sweet summer children. If you had been right, there with Lurton. Right. For real. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, for one, am officially demanding the Herbert cut of the book be released. <laughs> Herbert cut. It's in black you know, and hash, white. Hashtag, the, it, it's in black and white. The ratio of the book is weird. It's in 4-3 for it's some a reason. square book. <laughs> <laughs> but i would love to read it i would read all 1500 pages of that cut (laughs) yeah who okay which character would be spiky which character would get the spiky redesign (laughs) who gets spikier (laughs) stillgar stillgar definitely gets spikier yeah spiky stillgar spiky name So moving forward in the timeline a little bit, around May of 1963, Lurton gets in contact with Analog Magazine editor John W. Campbell Jr. And that's an important name. He's going to come back time and time again in this story. (laughs) Yeah. Because he starts to play a significant role in the development of Dune over the next couple years. Yeah. From the first moment he saw Dune, John was interested. Yeah. Which, like, yeah, John, buddy. Same. Relate. Same. (laughs) Yeah. And thus, this relationship was built as Dune was being written and developed between Frank Herbert and John Campbell and, of course, Agent Lurton. Right. The three of them would kind of share notes and drafts back and forth, constantly giving feedback and basically massaging this story into, obviously, what we know know it as today. Right. Now, within a few days, apparently, which is crazy to me, John officially bought the story for its initial serialization (laughs) he clearly really liked it he's like oh this is fucking dope sold (laughs) they're like we started talking two days ago (laughs) now remember at the time this was going to be the first part of the story leading up i guess presumably to the point where paul and jessica are in the still tent ending with this i'm going to be seen as muadib which leads into part two muadib right 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 now, the cost, which I thought was kind of a fun little tidbit, was about three cents a word, which came to about $2,550 as a total, which you know, sounds like, yeah, sure, fine. Mm-hmm. But adjusting for inflation in 2022 would be almost $24,000, Huh? which is, I don't know. Is that good? Is that good? I was, I was just going to say it. I don't know anything about the publishing industry. Is that a good like initial payment? I, mean, I don't even know. I, I if... don't know. I, I guess it's not a full book, right? It, he's just writing part one of it right now. Yeah. And it's like a serial publication. So it's like, I don't know how many current analogs exist. Yeah. Print serial publications aren't really a thing. Yeah. It's kind of hard to say. It's it's interesting. It, it, if you're in the publishing industry or yeah. know a lot about it, podcast at gmail.com. Totally. Please let us know. $24,000 for a serial publication of a an original sci-fi story. Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> good, bad? Yes, no? <laughs> right. 
I mean, it could always be better is the answer, right? Yeah, true. Artists should always be making more money. So, oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, John Campbell, thank you, but also <laughs> fuck you. Pay for you, Moore. man with the check. <laughs> <laughs> actually, uh, I'm sorry, John. We still got to keep talking <laughs> yeah. about you. And actually, you're mostly fine yeah. until we get to uh, Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. He's chill. He's chill. This is where John Campbell becomes pretty actively involved in Dune's development. And the book shares some of the correspondence back and forth between him and Frank. Yeah. There's a letter from June of 1963 where John, once again, you know, expressing his love of the book. He's clearly enamored with the story. Right. But he's thinking ahead because, again, this is still part one of a larger story. There's more parts to come. Right. And he's struggling to figure out how parts two and three are going to come together and make sense. And and to be clear, part two being Muad'Dib and part three being the prophet, just to be clear, not like Messiah and Children of Dune. Still, yeah. Yeah, not not sequel books. Right. We're still within the first book. Right. Those like separating story arcs. And the thing that John is hung up on is Paul's abilities, basically. He can't wrap his mind around Precious, which... <laughs> same. John, same. Yeah. <laughs> Quote, if Dune is to be the first of three and you're planning on using Paul in the future ones, oh man, you've set yourself one hell of a problem. You might make the next one somewhat more plottable if you didn't give Paul quite so much of the super duper. End quote. I love John's voice yeah his his t- style of writing is really interesting it's fun he's got personality I like yeah it. also super duper is a word i wish more people said <laughs> i wish i had more of the super duper <laughs> where do i buy it where do i inject it tell me <laughs> in iconic fashion frank responds to john's letter here with a five page defense of his position of his decision to give paul the super duper Lurton's like, your five-page response, a little slow in the beginning, uh, difficult to get through. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, Definitely too long. Too long. This could have this been a one-pager. Frank, <laughs> please. But no, look, Frank had to get into a lot of shit. Yeah. There's a lot of heavy discussion in this defense of things like, quote, <laughs> the nature of metaphysics, time, and prescience, end quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> classic frank also reminds me of trying to respond to our emails yes <laughs> it's like okay time to respond oh i've written three pages <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> that's so true that's so true <laughs> luckily john campbell like accepts this defense he's right. like okay cool you, you i trust what you're doing here right quote i'm not suggesting you drop paul's time scan ability because i dislike it but because i suspect it might make adequate plotting damn difficult your suggestions as to the limitations of the ability are sound end quote Mm. so frank's five page defense totally worked yeah john either read it or skimmed the first page and was like i don't have time for this whatever (laughs) he sounds like he knows what he's doing yeah either way an interesting back and forth here that we get from road to dune it's really cool to see these letters and this exchange between frank and his agent and the publishing company, the relationship gives us a lot of insight into the person Frank was. Like, he was the kind of person to be like, here comes a five-page fucking defense because I believe in this thing. <laughs> yeah. It's cool. It's also, I get from the tone of this and from the subsequent letters that 
John is team Frank at this point. Like, how do I help Frank get this story done? Yeah. And it's a fair point. Like, you give a character time reading abilities. How do you surprise that character now? And it does complicate the story immediately. Anytime someone says, hey, I've got this great idea for a story, it involves time travel. You're like, okay, you've got hundreds of hours of work just to figure out the systems of your story before you can even tell me about the characters. Totally. Which it's cool. It's like, okay, simplify. But you're right. He's like, clearly Frank knows what he's talking about. There's also a great letter that I didn't include, but Frank wrote it to John saying, hey, John, you know, the other night, me and like two of my friends were over and we were uh, we were all talking about like prescience and metaphysics and all this stuff around the nature of time, capital T time. Wish you were there. You were sorely missed, my friend, you know, and it just makes me so wish I was there. Too. I wish I was there, <laughs> Frank. Why didn't you invite me? Oh, this is 40 years before I was born. OK, fair enough. But still, yeah, damn, <laughs> that would be. What a great room to yeah. sit in. Uh, to be a fly on the wall in that room. To oh, hear, hear Frank himself talk about <laughs> prescience. Oh, well. Alas. Now, it's at this point in the journey of this book that we get a few letters from Frank to his agent, Lurton, on the topic of ESP and mental powers. Right. Again, they're like really hashing out Paul's abilities here, trying to figure out how this all works and how it'll affect the plot. Right. So basically, Frank in this letter, <laughs> he's very clear. He's like, I, I'm agnostic when it comes to these things. Like, I'm not decided one way or the other. ESP, maybe. I don't know. Haven't really seen evidence of it or, or to the counter. Uh, and again, to be clear, ESP stands for extrasensory perception, which sounds like Paul Atreides to me. <laughs> he says in this letter that he's read a ton of books. He's done extensive reading on ESP. And lists some. Now, we got an email recently from Amel Omari asking about kind of what books Frank may have tapped into as he was defining how Paul's prescience worked. And although Amel was asking, was Frank leaning into understandings of quantum physics or, you know, particle physics? Like what, where was Frank's scientific focus here? Frank in this letter is saying, here are the books that I've read on the subject of ESP specifically. And I wanted to list these out in case people wanted to like maybe take some notes, see maybe, oh yeah, cool. Where was Frank's research at regarding ESP? And the books he lists are Parapsychology by Rene Sudra. We have The Reach of the Mind and New World of the Mind, both by J.B. Rhine. And then he mentions various works by Andrija Puharik, who is a medical and parapsychological researcher. Now, he reiterates, he's like, I'm kind of skeptical about most of what I've read of these people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we have no doubt reading through this that the more kind of mind-bending, mind-warping abilities that happen in Dune probably owe some small credit to this period of research. Right. So it is interesting to see all of these maybe places that Frank is pulling during those six years of writing Dune. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool. Yeah. All right. Back to our timeline here. Dune is getting ever closer to publication, folks. We're so close. Inching forward. We're getting there. 
We're getting there. We learn at this point that uh, analog editor John Campbell, who's now had a huge impact on the franchise, all of this correspondence back and forth, has helped mold this story. Right. He suggested one other change in particular, and this is mind-blowing. This is crazy. John's suggestion was, hey, Frank, what do you think about not killing Alia Atreides in this book? What? (laughs) That's nuts. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's right. Road to Dune tells us that, quote, in the first version of the manuscript, Paul's sister was killed, end quote. And John thought that well, wait a second. It <laughs> might actually be better to keep her alive and use her for future installments, which we know she becomes such a major character in sequel books. Yeah. John's effect here like resonates through so much of the Dune saga. It's wild. It is so interesting. We're going to talk about this later, but it's so interesting to see how collaborative Dune turned out to be. Like It wasn't just this masterwork by one man. So many people had their hands in it. Right. I mean- even just speculating for a second, a lot of us had that feeling of like Paul's kid being killed off page, being very like sudden and a little weird. Part of me wants to say that like maybe this is where that comes from. Like Frank had written that a Sardaukar raid killed a child and then it was originally like Paul's infant sister. But then with that adjustment, maybe Alia lived and then it was Paul and Chani's kid. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That may be not giving Frank enough credit and being like, this is a slapdash, you know, patch solution. But just as like a thought, because again, Who knows? We're, we're in a place, a little bit of speculation here. We're given some solid facts, but then the fun can be kind of playing with all of that. Totally. Yeah. I, I could imagine him hitting command F on that chapter and replacing the word Alia with <laughs> Leto too. <laughs> right. The other thing worth mentioning briefly It's mentioned at this point in The Road to Dune that one of the reasons Frank decided to bring Duncan Idaho back in Messiah is because of his popularity among fans. Yeah. People are like, this character's fucking awesome. Frank's like, oh, yeah? All right. Uh, Let's see. Hate is now Duncan Idaho. (laughs) (laughs) Which, again, is not probably how it happened. He probably did have kind of a broader plan. But it is mentioned in... I guess in interviews or in subsequent periods, Frank acknowledged that the popularity of Duncan Idaho was why Duncan Idaho came back. And I just think it's so fun to see what we know of as Dune, which can feel so solid at times and so concrete, is just a little change here and there from being something completely different. Right. One John Campbell letter away from a character living or dying. Yeah. Crazy to think about. One other thing we wanted to share quickly, actually, about the development of the story. There's this great excerpt about a very famous moment in the story that you and I both love. Yeah. We're told that in the boxes of Frank's notes and excerpts that were recovered, there was also a, quote, scrap of paper torn from a notepad on which Frank Herbert had written in pencil, damn the spice, save the men. Ugh. This, the defining moment in the character of Duke Leto Atreides, might well have been written when Frank Herbert switched on his bedside lamp and jotted it down just before drifting off to sleep. End quote. That's so cool. Oh, goosebumps. Yeah. 
thinking of like one of my favorite lines in the book just being a a random thought he jotted down on like a on a notepad yeah damn the spice save the men yeah so cool so cool and again speaks to the sort of very fluid nature of dune at this point like every little thing could change and little pieces of dialogue that we think of as so defining yeah are just fleeting thoughts for frank at this time also cut to like 19 little scraps of paper with like beef swelling <laughs> written on it and chair dogs <laughs> and beverly's like god frank stop <laughs> oh my gosh well we're going to talk about the initial reception to dune's initial publication in analog magazine right after a quick break so stick around we'll be right back another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back, folks. Let's now talk about what happened when Dune was published and released to the wider world. Mm. At the start, Dune garnered quite a bit of positive attention. At the moment, it's still being released in this serialized format in Analog Magazine. And Frank and Agent Lurton actually had a ton of trouble getting Dune published at all. Right. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but the length continued to be an issue. Right, right. It was too much. It was too dense, too many words. Road to Dune actually explicitly talks about how a lot of science fiction novels at that time were like a very specific word count range. Yeah, it was like 60,000 words or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Something like shockingly small. And Frank was submitting stuff that was like over 200,000 words. And they were like, <laughs> yeah. buddy, you got to cut this down. <laughs> It'll be a 12-hour movie. People will sit through it. <laughs> That's a, that's a Jodorowsky joke. Orson Welles will star in it. I promise. Yeah. I have Dolly. I have Salvador Dolly. It will be great. <laughs> oh, Jodorowsky. Yeah. <laughs> Here, Road to Dune actually shares some direct quotes from these publishing companies that Frank and Lurton were submitting Dune to yeah. in an attempt to get it published. Nobody can seem to get through the first hundred pages without being confused and irritated. Slow spots, wearing conversations, bursts of melodrama. Something of this size would require a perfectly incredible investment and a list price far in excess of any science fiction book has ever had before. It may just be possible that we may be... God damn it, there's no may, an extra may. Your accent's changing the words. (laughs) (laughs) 
It is just possible that we may be making the mistake of the decade in Declining Doom by Frank Herbert. Hmm, quite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are literary agents and we're also melting. <laughs> <laughs> That, that silly bit aside, we wouldn't be here if somebody didn't eventually say yes. Right. And if we look at the timeline, this is about when Chilton Books made their offer to first publish the three kind of Dune chunks, <laughs> Dune, Muad'Dib, and The Prophet, as a single hardcover publication. Because that ultimately, that's that's what all of this has been about, right? Like, they have the analog publication as a serial, but they want to put it out as a book, you know, hardcover book. Right. And Chilton is like, you know what? Sure. Kind of famously, Chilton was mostly doing, like, automotive manuals at that time. Yeah. But they had, they had other publications, too. I feel like that's one of those myths that gets really blown up. Yeah. How to change your oil and see the future. <laughs> yeah. All from one company. Everything you need. Now, in this final stretch, the Chilton book conversations have begun. Dune is about to be published as one single volume. We get a few more letters in Road to Dune, which give us some really incredible insight into Frank's process of how he brought this story together, of how he wrote it. And we wanted to share some of these letters because, damn, it, it, it honestly, for me, changes the way I, I look at the book. Yeah, for sure. So first, in a letter to a friend, we get this just incredible passage. It's kind of mind-blowing. Quote, Much of the prose in Dune started out as haiku, and then was given minimal additional word padding to make it conform to normal English sentence structure. I often use a union mandala <laughs> in squaring off characters oh my God. of a yarn against each other, assigning a dominant psychological role to each. The implications of color, position, word root, and prosodic suggestion all are taken into account when a scene has to have maximum impact, and what scene doesn't if a book is tightly written, end quote. <laughs> oh my god. Which, okay, let's break that down. <laughs> Fascinating idea to start with a haiku, right? Five syllable, seven syllable, five syllable, just literally poetry to build out using minimal word padding what a way to construct prose yeah super fascinating then he mentions this thing a jungian mandala which i had to look up i'm sorry if you're listening and you're like oh, i know what those are cool not a competition but you win <laughs> i had to do some digging i had to research it appears like carl jung right famously carl mm -hmm. jung mm-hmm used circular mandalas, like you would draw and illustrate a mandala, as a way of representing the totality of someone's psyche, and he would basically have his patients draw them as a means of understanding themselves. And apparently he would, like, draw a mandala every morning to kind of understand parts of the subconscious and kind of what your totality as a human is kind of what's coming to the forefront, that sort of thing. And it sounds like Frank used... Maybe something akin to that, or he used these mandalas as a method of solidifying maybe his character's psyches. Yeah. So, you know, everyone has that sort of like full, complex persona. I don't know. A little bit of that's 
trying to understand what Frank is saying in this letter. But that's my read on it. Yeah, this is incredible. Look, we here on the God of podcast always joke that we overthink things, that we go too deep, perhaps, that sure, we're reading sure. into things that aren't there, perhaps. Right. This letter from Frank proves to me, at least, that we are not going deep enough. <laughs> yeah. Fuck y'all. We need to be going way deeper. There are so way many more levels. <laughs> now I have to reread all of Dune and pull out where the haikus were written. I did not know this. Stay tuned for Dune Book Club 2. <laughs> right. All about Dune again, but this time hunting for haikus. Haiku edition. Right. Haiku edition. <laughs> all of our scripts will only be written in haikus. And <laughs> we'll we will only speak in haikus. <laughs> yeah, th this is wild. I mean, like, when you think of the book, you're like, okay, Frank wrote a story and he's a good writer. and you, But, like, there's obviously so much more to it than that. And it's clear that this masterpiece didn't just come out of an afternoon's work of thinking about it. Right. Like, our, our guy was out here putting in the time, doing the research, and practicing his writing in a way that sounds unique to me at least like i've never heard of an a writer starting out in haiku and then changing it to quote-unquote standard like normal english prose yeah that's feels to me like a really interesting way to write a book and not an easy way by any means to write a book it kind of reminds me of uh someone asked taika watiti how he writes like a screenplay and he was saying he was like here's my answer you're not gonna like it he writes a screenplay and he puts it aside for like a year or two. And then he comes back to it, having forgotten most of what happened in it, reads it once or twice, and then puts it aside and writes it again from memory. Wow. And of course, he'll only write the things that he remembers, the memorable moments. Yeah. And then he uses that. He throws out the one that he wrote three years ago, two years ago. And he uses the one that's just the memorable moments and then pads that out with like more like narrative stuff. Damn. That that's amazing. I haven't I didn't know that about Taika. Yeah, there's a couple of great interviews with him, uh, doing like, I don't know, guest lecturing at, at schools. But to your point, I picture pretty much every author I've ever known, because I'm not an author, I picture them sitting down by candlelight, obviously. It helps. And a typewriter or a feathered quill. Yep. <laughs> These mm -hmm. are the ways I picture authors. If you write books today, this is how I picture you do it. By glow globe, <laughs> right? And I picture just like writing the story. It was a dark and stormy night. Sure. But really, it seems like a lot of these authors find a way to engage with the story in a way that goes beyond the words on the page. And inevitably, I think that's going to have an impact on how we as the readers go... Well, yeah, the words on the page are fine and pretty, but wow, isn't it interesting how these characters really feel flushed out psychologically? And clearly that's infrastructure that Frank literally focused on as part of his creative process. Yeah, totally. It's amazing insight into his, like you're saying, the creative process that most people don't see, right? You only ever experience the end product right? and not the literal hundreds or thousands of hours of work that go into it. So this is a, a little small peek into some of those hours. <laughs> haikus. Haikus. <laughs> lots and lots of lots haikus. Lots of haikus. Now, a little bit later, we get a response to a letter from a fan. And Frank shares this thought, which I thought was really poignant. Quote, It's also long. <laughs> no kidding. It's also long because it contains what I call vertical layers. 
many levels at which a reader may enter it. Another experiment on my part. You can choose the layer you want and follow that throughout the story. Rereading, you might choose an entirely different layer, discover something new in the story. End quote. Wow. Now, that layered quality of Dune, you know, people ask, what is Dune about? I'm like, oh, on one level, it's like, who fights, who dies, knife fights, you know, uh, house atomics being used on the shield wall, big explosions, things like that, right? That's like plot level A. And then you have like the B plot of ideologies that are fighting. And then you have like the C plot of uh, religion manipulating people and ecology and what is man's role in nature. That this is something that Frank intentionally went into the story with and made space for, even if it meant making the story longer, is really cool. Yeah. I love that Frank is, it also sounds like he's defending it. He's like, yeah, yeah, but it's also long because (laughs) I did all this fucking work. Are you not grateful, (laughs) fan? But it's such a rewarding part of Dune and it makes Dune so fun to revisit. Frank's right. Rereading Dune, you can say, you know what, this time I'm going to focus on what is Jessica's experience throughout this book. And it's a completely different story. And... It's still an engaging story and it's still full and fleshed out because just enough scenes exist to kind of give you that through line. Really cool. Yeah. Really fun to hear that this was like an intentional quality of the story that he had in mind when he was creating it and shortly after. Right. Right. Again, we're not going deep enough. We have to go through (laughs) every single vertical layer of the book. More! (laughs) (laughs) Kylo Ren. (laughs) <laughs> looking at our scripts on, on Google More. Docs. More. <laughs> now, let's actually step away from the first book for a second. Right. Because in Road to Dune, we get a few letters that actually concern the sequel, Dune Messiah. Sure. And considering how divisive Dune Messiah is, even <laughs> to this day, yeah. still, it, it's not a surprise that this second book faced quite a bit of criticism even from Frank's own friends and advocates. Just as a quick aside here, as is natural, Dune Messiah had a number of working titles during its writing, during its development. And we wanted to share these because I actually like fucking love one of them. We've got Fool Saint and the other is just The Messiah. I just want to put out there, Fool Saint is fucking awesome. What a dope <laughs> title. That juxtaposition of the sacred and then the like pedestrian, the, the idea of a fool saint mm-hmm. is so visceral, those two words paired, but it's so simple. Two syllables, it's punchy. It's I love it. I honestly love it. Mm-hmm. But you know, again, I'm very used to Dune Messiah, so Dune Messiah. That's fine. Cool. Dune Fool Saint or just Fool Saint, solid. I would not be angry being in that timeline. (laughs) In that alternate timeline, yeah. Not the darkest timeline, for sure. No, not at all. Although I will say it almost gives it a little too much away. And I wonder if that's a reason that that they didn't end up going with it, you know? Kind of of gives away like... Stone burner boy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Paul is blind in this one. Like, tough title, you know? Dune, Johnny dies. (laughs) (laughs) So, I, I like, I do... Like the minimalism of just Messiah, because who yeah. knows what that means. Agreed. Fool Saint kind of gives away like the trajectory of Paul's arc in that story. You're right. Also, I love that Messiah engages with the word. You might read it and go, oh, we're 
this is a positive thing, right? Like Dune, right. oh, Messiah, oh, he's Messiah. Why is Messiah ever a bad thing? Yeah. Well, then you read Dune Messiah and you're like, oh, is that sarcasm? <laughs> is the <laughs> yeah. title of the book like bleak and sarcastic? It's, it seems like it. Yeah, totally. Now, actually, speaking of Dune Messiah, we have a few letters in Road to Dune. Sure. The first one is from John Campbell, our boy from Analog Magazine. Mm-hmm. Who hated Messiah? <laughs> oh, no. John. Oh, John. no. It's so good. John. It's so <sighs> good. He just, he, you know, maybe the early drafts were a bit rougher. Yeah. <laughs> John wrote, quote, Paul commits acts of absolute folly, which you seek to explain on the basis of his visions require it. Paul winds up as a god that failed. He winds up in Fremen terms, which he accepts as a useless to the tribe cripple abandoned in the desert. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's true. What's that's the problem, n- John? <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear Great. any criticism, John. I just hear a good story. <laughs> Sounds moving. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, Messiah also went through a number of revisions, and I'm sure John's feedback was taken into account as well. And some of the parts of Messiah that were cut or edited or didn't make it to final polish, we'll actually be talking about in part two. Right. So stay tuned for a, a deeper discussion on Messiah in the next part. Right. Now, Lurton initially was like, yeah, this is good. This is great. What a great sequel. John Campbell's feedback came back and Lurton's like, okay, well, he didn't love it. Uh, but sure. Frank made some changes. He made some adjustments and he sent it to Lurton to forward to John. And Lurton said generally, hey, happy with the changes. Uh, hopefully John will like it. Yeah. John still hated it. No, no. John, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good premise. Here's the full excerpt of his letter from The Road to Dune, featured in the book. Quote, Herbert's revision of The Messiah still didn't satisfy me. In this one, it's Paul, our central character, who is a helpless pawn manipulated against his will by a cruel, destructive fate. The reactions of science fictioneers, however, over the last few decades, have persistently and quite explicitly been that they want heroes, not anti-heroes. They want stories of strong men who exert themselves, inspire others, and make a monkey's uncle out of malign fates. End quote. Oof. Which, John, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong, John. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, though, to look at this take oh, like 60 years later, right? Yeah. This idea of heroes versus anti-heroes and who's going to respond well to what. Right. It, it is so fascinating because I feel like that dichotomy is almost flipped. Like now? We almost live in an era where like anti-heroes are so hot. Yeah. All of pop culture is obsessed with the anti-hero. For sure. The rogue with the heart of gold. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting to hear that at that time, particularly in the sort of science fiction publication world, people just wanted like straight up heroes and people who won at the end of the story. And as we've talked about, Dune, not a hero's journey. Paul does not win. And it's it's interesting to hear John criticize Messiah in the way that many people still do today. Yeah. Where people read 
read or, you know, like I would say misread Dune into thinking Paul wins Paul and the is hero. the hero. Yeah, yeah. And then they read the sequel and they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Space Hitler? <laughs> what the cinnamon toast fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it's interesting that these criticisms that John is voicing in these letters from so long ago still being said today about Messiah. Yeah. Man, John would be very unhappy these days. <laughs> with yeah. Like, I oh don't want to watch Invincible. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's good. John would have nothing to watch. He would have infinite choices <laughs> on streaming services and he'd want to watch none of it. He would be like, okay, Encanto. It's fun. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily for all of us, Frank didn't bend to Campbell's feedback. He uh, he let that be a thing that he just kind of ignored, I guess. And Messiah was picked up by Galaxy Magazine for a five-installment run. Then by G.P. Putnam's Sons in hardcover and in paperback by Berkeley Books. So there it is. It's sold for both serial publication and as a hardcover-bound book, And a few short years later, the road to Dune was fully paved. Frank is the bee's knees. Everyone loves him. Indeed. Everyone's going, wow, what a great author, that Frank. And the rest is history. Yeah. Wow. What a journey. What a winding path, as we know all creative endeavors are. Yeah. But what a winding, winding road to finally getting Dune and Dune Messiah published and out into the world. Yeah. So interesting to hear. The ups, the downs, the trials, the tribulations, the word counts. (laughs) The word counts. That got in the way. And honestly, like the thing that really sticks with me through all of this is realizing how much could have stopped us from ever getting Dune. Oh, totally. Yeah. The little tip of the scale that could have just made it so that Dune never saw the light of day or never was published in a hardcover or never got a sequel. Like we might not be here talking about it if these series of events hadn't taken place. And if people like Agent Lerton and John hadn't seen something special in Frank and in Frank's stories and really backed him and, in fact, helped him mold it into the iconic stories we have today. I will say we skipped over a small portion, and I just say this for anybody who is interested in, like, deep publication (laughs) details, trials and tribulations. There is, like, four or five paragraphs detailing, like, initial sales of dune and you know there's even a portion of frank getting up for an award and you know how are sales going okay we're going to order a new run a new print run all of that very interesting not really related to dune coming to be so we left it out of this episode but if you are in publishing or if you're really interested in that kind of like those numbers and those details track down a copy of road to dune maybe at a local library or something just flip through it find those paragraphs it's interesting stuff for those of you who that might tickle your fancies, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Totally. Now, one other part of the book that we wanted to talk about today in part one is actually this really heartwarming forward by sci-fi author Bill Ransom, right? who was one of Frank's close friends and colleagues, and what this forward reveals to us about the kind of writer Frank was, the kind of friend Frank was, and just some of the touching moments that Bill mentions in this forward as he reflects back on his 15-year friendship with Frank Herbert. So we wanted to briefly touch on that a little bit today as well. Right. Now, he is, as you'd expect a friend to be, 
Very fond of Frank. Hey. <laughs> Clearly likes the guy, which is very nice. And he shares some details about their friendship, kind of how it got started. Now, they were both published authors from the same area, Puyallup Valley, Washington. So they were generally aware of one another within that kind of literary world, right? After basically long lives, again, we're, we're talking about the last 15 years of Frank's life. Right. And after they both moved, coincidentally, to Port Townsend in the same week, coincidentally, <laughs> which is just wild. Yeah. Ransom reached out with a coffee invitation addressed to one of, and I thought this was so fucking cute, addressed to one of Frank Herbert's pseudonyms, uh, which I guess Frank kind of published a number of articles or stories under that Bill Ransom kind of knew of. Mm -hmm. So he was like, hey, is this person available for coffee? Which was very cute. The next day, Frank called and their 15-year friendship began. Yeah. And it turns out it was a close friendship. Yeah. Bill writes that they would have coffee or lunch almost every single day. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, throughout their conversations and throughout their friendship, they would challenge each other to, quote, risk something in our work, like crossing over into other genres, such as screenplays, end quote. Mm, cool. So not only is it just a friendship over coffee and lunch every day, yeah. but it's a friendship between writers who are pushing each other to better their craft as well. Amazing. Which you love to see. Yeah. It turns out they actually did end up co-writing a book together. Yeah. It's called The Jesus Incident. I've never read it. Right. But the story behind it is fascinating. As Bill writes, the publisher actually only wanted Frank's name on the cover. Right. And was pushing for Frank to get a larger cut of sales because by this point, obviously, like late in his career, Frank was a huge name right. in the writing world, in the science fiction world. And as Bill tells it, Frank went to the publisher, spoke to them, refused the deal, refused this larger cut, and came back with effectively what, what was a 50-50 credit contract. Right. Because both of them wrote this book together. Right. I loved that little anecdotal story. It tells us the kind of person Frank was at that time in his life. And the kind of respect he had for his friend here. Yeah, clout to Frank. Super cool. Yeah, very cool. Now, Bill shares a few lessons he says he learned from Frank as a writer, which, man, many of these resonate with me as kind of a fan of Dune, and I think may as well for all of you out in listener land. Here's the first, quote, A good story had to do two things, inform and entertain. The informing part must be entertaining enough to let readers live the story without feeling like they're on the receiving end of a sermon. Writing entertainment without information, without some insight into what it is to be human, is a waste of good trees. <laughs> ah, <laughs> End quote. That last sentence. <laughs> it's so good. And honestly, it's true. I think of like Ayn Rand, you know, wrote obviously like, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead and problematic books for many reasons, but can be entertaining on some levels. But both of them iconically feature these like 14 page monologues from the characters, which is just clearly in Ayn Rand's voice of like what yeah. she believed. I never really felt that in 
Dune. Like you take a step back and you talk to a friend after reading a chapter and you go, oh, clearly this is Frank kind of pushing his stuff. But in the moment, it feels like Paul saying these things. Right. Or it feels like Stilgar saying these things. Or it feels like, you know, it's all written in a very entertaining, engaging way. (laughs) I just love that. A book that's entertaining but doesn't have any insight into what it is to be humans a waste of trees a waste of good trees so good ah, so funny <laughs> what do you think of my book frank it's a waste of trees waste of good trees man good lord literally taking fresh air out of my lungs is what your book is doing you're killing earth with your <laughs> shit writing <laughs> God. Also, yeah, Frank on the note of ecological, right? Just like, yeah, yeah. What is that doing to the ecosystem? <laughs> You're right. wasting trees, bro. The the second quote we wanted to share here is Frank Herbert also believes that science fiction was the only genre whose subject matter attempted to define what it is to be human. We use contact with aliens or alien environments as impetus or backdrop for human interaction. End quote. Yeah. <laughs> sure. That one I think is a bit more debatable. I don't necessarily de- agree with that one as much yeah. as I agree with the first quote. It's like fucking true for fantasy too, right? Like <laughs> Right. And I feel like any art can be used to explore the human condition. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be a certain genre or medium. So I, I do disagree with Frank on this one. But I understand where he's coming from. That science fiction in particular right. really delves into the big what if questions about humanity in ways that some other genres may not. But I think all art does to some extent. So yeah, tit for tat on this one. He's a science fiction writer. So he's like, yeah, science fiction is the top of the mountain. Right. Totally. And we're we're all biased in our own ways. You know, like the only podcasts I think are good podcasts can only be found on loreparty.com. So (laughs) are called Gamjabar. (laughs) (laughs) Of all the podcasts I like, 100% of them are called Gamjabar. Have to be hosted by Abu and Leo. Now, Frank isn't the only person that Bill talks about in this forward. Sure. Because we can't forget about his second wife, Beverly. Beverly. Oh, Angel. Who, by all accounts, was Frank's better half. Yeah. Until her passing in 1983. Right. Bill does nothing but gush about Beverly in this forward. Right. He calls her Frank's guardian angel. He gives her credit for pushing Frank to like quit some dead end jobs or some jobs that he hated so he could focus on the thing that he loved uh, on writing. Goals. That's the kind of partner you want, folks. Seeking applications for a Beverly in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag find Leo a Beverly. <laughs> Here's a direct quote from Bill. She had uncanny radar for detecting buffoons, hangers-on, con artists, and other fools. Not many got past Bev to test Frank, but Bev had the diplomacy and good graces to protect Frank while also protecting the dignity of those who would intrude on him, end quote. Oh, my God. My God. Incredible. Guardian angel indeed. Also, sounds a lot like Chani fucking knifing people who are trying to fight Paul. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> These fucking would-be nabes going like, yo, is Frank uh, available for coffee? She's like, I've got this. Frank, I've got this. I've got this. Right. Don't worry. Right. Keep She's the Frank. phase one of the boss battle you got to get through <laughs> before yeah. you can make your pitch to Frank about your sci-fi, sci-fi book, you know? Uh, the bullshit Elden Ring mini boss who kills you more <laughs> often than the boss itself. <laughs> One other note that Bill has about Beverly here is 
she's actually the one that got them to work together on this book that they wrote. Mm. She's the one who first suggested it. Quote, she was Frank's first reader and critic, and her opinion held serious water. End quote. Oh. What beautiful memories of Beverly that he has. It's so nice to hear that Frank had this life partner right. who was like with him on this journey through the sands of Arrakis and in fact pushed him to be better about it. Also, her opinion held serious water. What a what a Fremen compliment. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> How yeah. many water rings does her opinion carry? Yeah, it's very sweet and insightful that one of Frank's closest friends dedicates like three paragraphs to talking about Beverly. Clearly a huge part of Frank's process. Totally. Now, Bill wraps up his foreword with this touching dedication to Frank. Quote, I think of Frank every time I touch a keyboard, hoping I'm writing up to his considerable standards. In the old English, poet was shaper or maker. Frank Herbert was a maker on a grand scale. The most loyal friend a person could ask for and a funny, savvy, first-class guy. He continues to be missed. End quote. Bless the maker and his water. Maker, blessed be the maker. Wow, beautiful. Oh, beautiful words. And again, just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to hear such kind words being spoken from a close friend. And, yeah. Uh, and beautiful words. I also did double check the etymological nerd that I am. I was like, are you sure poet used to be make? And yeah, sure enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's origins are maker, builder, crafter. It's cool. Damn. Neat. You know, I'm going to copy and paste Bill Ransom's forward <laughs> and just replace Frank with Leo after you die. <laughs> okay. So now our search for find Leo a Beverly needs to be literal. Has to be it has someone to be literal. You have to marry a Beverly, or, <laughs> or my or sense. my forward won't make sense after oh, your shit. death. She also so has to be to... my second wife, and she has to die in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot. <laughs> Look, time travel stories are complicated, as we've established. <laughs> <laughs> Story. This is going to become Looper, but it's really just going to be to make your eulogy make more sense. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Okay, let's wrap up today's part one exploration of Road to Dune with a couple of questions, as we like to do. Sure. Leo, I would love to know, after today's conversation and after all of this research that you've done yeah. into Road to Dune, what was perhaps your biggest takeaway? What, do you, what was the most surprising thing you learned? Yeah, interesting. Uh, well, I think for me... What is most surprising is how much Dune was a collaboration. Yeah. Between uh, Frank Lurton, Beverly, and John Campbell. You know, I think this is a mistake a lot of us make about great art, but we, we tend to put the individual artist on this pedestal, right? Much to, much to Frank's chagrin. He's like, stop. Yeah. <laughs> stop making <laughs> messiahs of artists. But it's true. We look at artists and we say hey that artist oh my god they were irreplaceable they are a singular force in this universe and it makes a certain sense you know you look at a painting and it's got one name on it you look at a book it's got one author's name you look at a movie it's got one director's name right right but like so many things and as you learn more about either an artist's life or an art form it's more and more clear that every great work of art included 
pressures from society, impactful mentors, friends, family, uh, and individuals, you know, colleagues. So it, it takes a village to make a lot of these great works of art. And it's a conversation between either an artist and an idea that they were given from somewhere else or whatever, right? Like every impactful work of art includes all this stuff. And, and Dune is no different. Yeah. Which is surprising to me. Again, this idea of like Alia dying in the first book and uh, and Paul's prescience being a problem. These are things that became conversations that shaped Dune that may not have happened if not for Lurton and John and I'm sure Beverly throughout the whole process. <laughs> yeah, it, it is so interesting to hear. Yeah, I think we can agree. We can look at Dune and say it's much better for those individuals' involvement. Yeah. That this is kind of a group effort. Right. Frank is, by all means, the person who made Dune happen. I don't mean to at all take away from his brilliance as a writer, clearly. He is a maker on a grand scale, as Bill says. But it was striking to me how many other people were directly involved in the shaping of Dune. Right. In pivotal parts of Dune as well. Right. Not just, hey, like, let's use a different word here in this sentence. Right. Literally, hey, let's keep this whole ass character alive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a character that becomes like a main character in Messiah and yeah. future books. Like that's. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But that that's my kind of, that's what was surprising to me. What about you? What was surprising? Any major takeaways? So this question was great because it, it kind of stumped me for a bit. I feel like we already kind of gushed about the details that we've learned from Road to Dune all throughout our discussion today. Right. So my biggest takeaway was less about the details we've picked up from the book and actually more about what the book represents in like this larger history of Frank and Dune. There's obviously some myth-making being done here in Road to Dune, as you've alluded to as well, about how the book came to be and who was involved and what kind of person and writer Frank was. And I, that sounds negative, but uh, I'm by no means claiming that anything in this book is false or fabricated. But right. what I am saying is that this book is a story of the origin of Dune and of the origin of Frank Herbert, the famous author, told through a very particular lens. And it's a lens that both reveres the story of Dune and the man behind it. And that's something you have to keep in mind. I, I myself am particularly wary of autobiographies or biographies written by people who are too close to the source. Because there's just no way to avoid it that will always introduce a level of bias that I think skews the reality. Totally, yeah. And that's obviously happening here in Road to Dune. Right. It's a book written about a very famous man which includes words by people that loved him, written by his son, right. who then used his father's career to build a very lucrative career for himself as well. Right. A lot of bias at play there, obviously. But that isn't to say there isn't value to having this kind of record. It is amazing to have these like primary source exact copies of these letters sent back and forth between Agent Lurton and John Campbell and Frank. This is incredible record to have publicly available to anyone who wants to buy the book and learn more about how Dune came together. Right. I also think the letters in this book where Frank is talking about how 
he came up with Dune or defending his ideas or talking about his writing style or storytelling techniques mm-hmm. are invaluable to young writers out there or any young creatives out there. The way that Frank is thinking about these stories, this haiku method, all of these things are important lessons from a from a master of his craft, right? Yeah. If you could ask the best person in their field for advice and write it down so that it could make you better, you absolutely would. And this book contains like invaluable writing and storytelling advice from one of the best science fiction authors of all time. Yeah. And so for that, there is value in the book. So my my takeaway is less like, boo, don't pay attention to anything in this book because it's all just right. glorifying Frank. No, Bias there is propaganda. some glorifying. Right, propaganda, boo. No, not at all. Not what I'm saying. I'm just yeah. oh, very much aware of where this book falls into the right. larger like right. legend of Frank Herbert and the legend of Dune. And... Uh, I'm trying to be, just be very cognizant as we have these discussions and talk about it that this is one side of the story. Right. And the side that is very favorable to Dune to Frank Herbert. Much like this podcast, right? Like, we're not on this podcast because we fucking hate <laughs> Dune. <laughs> like, we yeah. come into every discussion already being predisposed to liking what we're going to talk about. So, right, right. you know. That's a larger, now I'm like rambling about how bias works. Like, (laughs) I don't know why I'm trying to define this, but yes, like that's something I I, I kept in mind while, while skimming through this book and working on this script and having this conversation, still a lot of value to be had. And I I would really recommend for fans of Dune to, to check the book out themselves and, and dive into these details. You know, it's funny how much we have to remind ourselves of Frank Herbert's central thesis not to trust right. charismatic leaders and messiahs right. as we praise Frank Herbert as an infallible God of a human yes. <laughs> who yeah. gifted us this gift from the heavens. As I pray to my Dune altar every <laughs> night before bed, like, yeah, I, I got to remind myself that, uh, you're right. You know. We don't want to make the mistake of putting Frank on this pedestal. And I think, uh, it is more honor to him to say he as a writer, he as a story crafter, he's a human you know, there were flaws, there were mistakes and there were problems. That's a, it's a great point. And I think it's, it's one that honors Frank's intentions with writing tune in the first place. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So obviously that question led us down into a very heavy rabbit hole. Let, let's end today, Leo, mm. on a bit of a lighter question. Sure. Let's wrap up on this. We know that Full Saint and the Messiah were alternate titles for Dune Messiah. Mm-hmm. What other titles would you come up with at a pitch meeting if we were crowdsourcing what to call the sequel to the iconic book dune okay well a few come to mind immediately right uh-huh. we could go classic dune 2 too fast oh. two duncans <laughs> yes objectively true yeah true i think that's solid um i do like your suggestion from i think children of dune book club uh, episode one Series of Unfortunate Events. Fantastic <laughs> title. I don't think that's been taken yet. I think that's right. a really solid one. Not in the 60s, you know? Suck it, Lemony Snicket. Suck it, Lemony Snicket, a.k.a. Irulan? Jessica. <laughs> Jessica. Jessica. Right. right. <laughs> I, we could do the uh, the uh, alien method, right? Uh-huh. Dunes. 
Oh, just <laughs> add the S. <laughs> just add the S. Stupid. It's easy. And then for the third book, Dunes. Dunes is another S. <laughs> An apostrophe. You add. A <laughs> uh, or, or, you know, you just go fully, fully off the rails. Yeah. And I don't know, just call it chair dog. <laughs> or like a Clareby story or like prequel to Clareby, you know, something yeah. like that. Okay. I don't know. Okay. All stupid suggestions, but right. ones that tickle my very specific niche of humor. Yeah. What about you? Did any uh, titles, sequel titles jump out to you from your yeah. depths? Yeah. Honestly, like one hit me immediately. Sure. And I didn't even bother coming up with any others because I was like, this is gold. I don't need <laughs> to do anything beyond this. No work sure. is necessary. I would call the sequel Paul Muadib or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Messiah. <laughs> I know it's a bit wordy. It's a mouthful. It's a bit yeah. on the wordier side. Yeah. It's going to be hard to squeeze into like a small paperback cover, but I believe we can do it. <laughs> of course, along with the title pitch, I'd have some story notes for Frank as well, because that's the kind of person I am. I can't help myself. Yeah. I would pitch to Frank in the room that he should actually maybe completely change the story and instead tell it from the perspective of perhaps a young Arakeen barista who's just trying to pay off his Imperial College Kitan loans. Okay. <laughs> and at the same time, he's exploring himself. He's exploring his art, trying to find his voice. But in the story, he falls into this cult of Wadib's religion. Oh. Enlists in the jihad and is deployed to a number of planets where he goes on zany adventure. I'm going to stop talking, actually. This is an amazing fanfic <laughs> that I'm clearly going to work on. Oh, my God. got to find some time to write this. I, I'm giving y'all free ideas. This is a bestseller. <laughs> I was going to say, we have now officially commissioned Dune art. Yeah. Abu, we could commission Dune stories. Oh, snap. From independent writers. Think about it. Dune fan fiction is a world we have yet to delve into. I, but I bet there's some amazing stuff out dude, there. Dude, I want to. I want to do it. Find things that are cohesive <laughs> with Dune's, with Frank's lore. Are you kidding me? Yeah. 100%. And look, listener, don't tempt us, okay? Don't send your fan fiction <laughs> to gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Stop tempting us. Stop. Okay. at gmail.com is not the best place to send your Dune fan fiction for us do to read. Do not. No, don't. Don't do it. Don't. Don't do it. Do it. Don't. Do it, do it a little bit. Don't. Do it but just do a little it. bit. Just a little bit. Do it. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't write it up don't hit send <laughs> wow i Very love that silly. we're like what, what what is this like foreplay with our listeners that we have going on today's very sensual today's a sensual <laughs> yeah. episode well friends there is no real ending it's just the place where you stop the recording but this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. I was thinking about what other like stupid Snyder like memes could be applied to this square black and white adaptation of Dune. <laughs> and I was like, slow motion? How do you do slow motion book? The words are like further apart <laughs> or it's right. like 
takes six minutes to read this page. You're like, fuck, okay, read yeah. really slowly. <laughs> the line spacing is like 3x <laughs> instead of... <laughs> I was like losing my mind laughing about that. <clears throat> anyway. And maybe the page gets spikier. <laughs> it's just a spiky page. Uh. <laughs> it's the page the Baron was introduced. I'm sorry. Okay.